Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Happy Friday. So we have the uh, the, the COVID death cult forming on the right. We have to talk about that. Uh, we also have uh, new forms of the cancel culture. But to help us navigate through all of this, we needed to bring back the professor himself, Tom Nichols, who is taking a break from numerous Twitter fights, um, authoring numerous books, teaching classes, doing all of that stuff. And so now he's going to make time to talk to us on the podcast. So Tom Nichols, welcome back. Great to be back with you, Charlie. I, I need I need you to be our um, our interpreter here because I, I I can't make sense of this. I just put this in context. the The esteemed United States Senator from the state of Tennessee, Marsha Blackburn, has some deep <laughs> thoughts about socialism and Taylor Swift. Could we just play that? This is this is Marsha Blackburn, who is a member of the United States Senate who is very, very concerned about the impact of socialism on Taylor Swift. Entertainers, I say, if, if we have a socialistic government, if we have Marxism, you are going to be the first ones who will be cut off. The first. Because the first. state would have to approve your music. All the time. And, you know, Taylor Swift came after me in my 2018 campaign. But Taylor Swift would be the first victim of uh, that. Because when you look at Marxist socialist societies, they do not allow women to dress or sing or be on stage or to entertain or the type music that she would have. They don't allow protection of private intellectual property rights. Really? Okay. So number one, the number one victim, Taylor Swift, United States Senator Marsha Blackburn. Tom Nichols, help me here. Just well, you know, I, as I said on Twitter the other day, you know, one of the things that always bothers me is when somebody like Josh Hawley or uh, J.D. Vance or one of these other, you know, very well-educated grifters plays the, you know, the deputy dog Huckleberry Hound bullshit and, tries to seem like just ordinary folks. Um, but in Marsha Blackburn's case, she really is stupid. Um, this this really is just, she is just, you know, dumber than a bag of hammers. Uh, but Apology, there is apologies a, to bags of hammers, <laughs> to, which are useful. Exactly. And, and the thing about her is um, she is just smart enough to know that she has a kind of laundry list of um, trigger words, uh, socialism, Marxism, um, you know, the state, the this, the that. Um, first of all, I think anybody out there has to admit, you know, in the big Marsha um, Blackburn versus Taylor Swift, we're all on Tay-Tay's side. Um, but she's also, it's also just crazy. I mean, it's just so dumb and wrong in so many ways. First of all, socialism isn't what Marsha Blackburn thinks it is. She does bring up Marxism, um, and what she really means is if this were some kind of Soviet or Chinese dictatorship, North, North Korea, maybe, you know, or North, well, North Korea is a different thing, but you know, the, if this were the North Korea is this weird kind of dynastic, you know, booby hatch, um, you know, like Albania used to be, but you know, the Soviet union, let's say, and, and I mean, having been to the old Soviet union, they had rock stars. Now, they couldn't sing everything they wanted to sing. And Marsha Blackburn's right. And if we ever have a Soviet-American government, 
Taylor Swift is going to have trouble like everybody else in yeah. the public sphere. But not um, saying but that's not what Sweden or I don't know <laughs> Denmark. This they don't really operate that way there. No, really. no. Uh, you know, if if basically put another way, if marginal interest rate, if marginal tax rates go to forty percent, Taylor Swift can still go on stage. Okay, so this this is how we got ABBA. They, 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 you know, <laughs> Well, I mean, the part of the thing about it is you're, you're right. There is that sort of grab bag of words she just throws out. It is, it is like Mad Libs, and uh, you know, you know, so- socialism means which this, does have, which is a strategy, Charlie. I mean, oh, no, there no, is that not. sort of you know, hey, socialism, and you know, the average, uh, you know, Marsha Blackburn voter says, well, I don't know what that is, but boy, I'm mad now. It, it's 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 bad, and it's and it's dangerous. Now, you make an interesting distinction here, and this is why I, I don't get really upset over the Marsha Blackburns of the world because they are, I mean, they're they're just dumb. I mean, how how mad can you get? As opposed to the people who know uh, what they're doing and who know better. That's why, on my moral scale, Sean Hannity, okay, dumb as a box of hair, you know, but but Tucker Carlson is smart enough to know the damage that he's doing and needs to be held to a different standard. But I guess part of this whole thing of when he's talking about, you know, what, what socialism would do to Taylor Swift, this whole notion that somehow that, that Joe Biden is like five minutes away from being Lenin, (laughs) that Joe Biden is, if you just take your eyes off him, if we abolish the filibuster, he's Mao. He's been waiting 47 years, Charlie. He's and the every deepest deep sleeper that the socialists ever sent us, um, you know, all of that center right Democratic Party stuff was a gigantic ruse uh, until the day we were finally crazy enough to make him the red president. Uh, it, it's insane. The whole thing is insane. And I think you the Manchurian candidate. You never the, saw that movie, did you? The uh, the, the Manchurian the, uh, the Wilmington the Man- candidate. Yeah, the the Manchurian Candidate was really just a documentary of what was going to happen. Okay, okay, other great minds uh, from Washington. This is Congressman Ken Buck from uh, Colorado, who who is actually isn't he like the ranking member of the House Committee that's dealing with uh, antitrust legislation involving big tech? So he he's actually a player in real world legislation, and he was caught on tape with what would be one of those big, if true, stories. Let's just play uh, Ken Buck talking about algorithms. Google, by the way, uh, uh, changed its algorithm in May of 2020 to disadvantage Donald Trump and to advantage uh, Joe Biden. Changed its algorithm. And when you ask them about this, and I know people that, that own newspapers and ask them about it, um, they, they, they say, oh, well, that's just a technical thing. We don't know what the result was. We just know mm-hmm. that, that, we did, that, that a technical person did this. Nonsense. They chose the winner. They can move. The estimates are they move 15 million votes. Because every time you, you ask for an article on Donald Trump or every time you Google Donald Trump, and people here obviously Google in a more sophisticated way, but, but people out there is hearing about Donald Trump and they're wondering, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump, Hunter Biden. 15 million people say, people say, wouldn't it be interesting? Many people say. Many people say. It would be interesting to hear Ken Buck define the word algorithm. I would just love to hear Ken Buck actually. Okay, explain how the algorithms work and what happened here. We're just interested. This is the thing I wanted to come 
come back to a minute ago, which is you made a really important distinction and it's something we're not talking about enough. I don't think, which is, um, look there, you know, and, and this is, I'm not going to both sides this, but I will say having worked in Congress and watched American politics, there are dumb people in both parties. I mean, both mm-hmm. parties have, you know, people in them who need things explained very slowly with flashcards by their staff. That's just the nat- that is a natural distribution of human beings. Um, the, the Republican Party has this unique problem, as you pointed out, of people that are just dumb um, and viciously so, which I think is also a, another n- you know new hallmark of the GOP. That when you and I became Republicans back in the twilight uh, golden past, um, we actually thought we were joining the intellectual party rather than the emotional party. Um, but there is this kind of vicious streak of stupid, like Louis Gohmert and Lauren Boebert and Marsha Blackburn and, and the rest of them. But the real danger here is that a lot of people keep throwing all of those into the same bucket as, as you point out, Tucker Carlson or JD Vance or Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz. And this is the real danger. This is where American politics has really, I think, where the right has taken American politics off the rails, which is highly educated, very smart people intentionally playing to the dumbest and angriest people among us. Um, Your juxtaposition with Hannity and uh, Carlson is perfect. I would also add to that Hannity is the kind of bucket of stupid in between Carlson and Ingraham, mm-hmm. who both know exactly what they're doing. These are both highly educated, Ivy League, uh, you know, um, well-read people with advanced degree. They know exactly what they are doing. They know exactly how they're doing it. And they know exactly why they're doing it. And that really makes them uniquely dangerous. So that while, you know, we sort of laugh and chuckle at Ken Buck on algorithms, um, you know, the bigger problem is that there are people who are, in a way, in, in, on the right, doing exactly what Facebook is doing, which is figuring out how to trigger these cortisol and dopamine anger and ple- pleasure rushes out there among the American public that is basically turning people into rage junkies. And that's that's what's really going to tear this country apart. Well, that's a good segue because th- those those may be it may be funny talking about Ken Buck, but it is not at all funny to talk about what's going on with uh, with the vaccines. And uh, as you know, you and I were chatting about this right before we began the podcast. I I have been feeling a serious rant coming on for a couple of days. The the fact that we are now at more than four million dead worldwide with the coronavirus, more than six hundred and six thousand Americans have died. We have the Delta variant, which is exploding in certain parts of the country. In Missouri, uh, they're putting out calls for uh, you know emergency uh, medical personnel because the hospitals are so filled up. And and yet at this moment, you have the right. Uh, going full uh, performative demagogue on um, anti anti vaxism, and it's the same divide. It's you you do have you do have the you do have the stupid uh, you know Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts, but you also have people like Dan Crenshaw and Congressman Chip Roy and again exactly. Carlson Laura, Laura Ingram, who are fear mongering and spreading disinformation about the vaccines. At a time when it is, and and this is, I use the word literally, literally here, 
a matter of life and death. The, the irresponsibility, the recklessness, the what I called in my newsletter today, the depraved indifference to human life is really breathtaking, even by the standards, the debate standards that we've had over the last few years. You know, the the shows like Ingraham and the performances of people like Rand Paul, you know, of course, Rand Paul might be kind of unhinged like his dad about these kind things. Of nuts, yeah. Um, you know, Ron Johnson, who I think falls into the actually honestly stupid category, uh, but the Laura Ingrahams of the world, they remind me of, uh, and maybe this metaphor occurs to me because I'm, I'm a recreational gambler, right? Casinos are built to separate the most desperate people from the last penny in their pocket. The way the air smells, the frequency with which the bells on the slot machine ring, the color of the carpets, everything is designed to glue your eyeballs to that machine and make you take out the last penny, um, even if it's your mortgage. And, you know, that doesn't make casinos evil. Makes There's an issue of personal responsibility there. Um, but when you are basically telling people, when you are basically being like the television equivalent of a slot machine that never pays off, and just gluing people to it and saying, by the way, the thing I want from you is literally for you to die if that's what makes profit and political advantage for me. Um, we are really in a morally depraved situation when it comes to this. There really wouldn't be any harm um, to Laura Ingraham or, Te or uh, uh, Carl T Tucker Carlson's yeah. bottom line. You know, there's only so much money in the world. There's only so rich you can be. They already are as powerful as they're ever going to be. Um, it, there would be no harm to them to say, look, I hate Joe Biden. Socialism is everything. T Taylor Swift is going to be in the gulag. But, you know, you ought to go get vaccinated. But yeah. they're not going to do it because it's squeezing that one last that one last microgram of anger and attention and rage out of these, you know, unbelievably angry, narcissistic, gullible uh, people who worship them and okay. they're going to die because of it. This point is so important. They don't need to do this. They can choose right. what to talk about and what not to talk about. There are Republicans around the country, like the governor of West Virginia, who's saying, you know, go get go get vaccinated. Even Mitch McConnell saying he doesn't understand. I was just going to say Mitch McConnell. Even Mitch McConnell. So you don't need to do it. Now, Dan Crenshaw, every once in a while, will pretend to be a very serious person. You know, re remember when he wrote this one essay and, you know, all the you know, all the serious people thought, it, you know, he's, he's talking about, uh, you know, warning people against people who fight that when they're really just feeding the beast of, of anger. And yet he jumped in this and he did the, the whole, you know, um, the attack on Biden's comment that we're going to, you know, send people door to door saying, you know, how about don't knock on my door? You're not my parents. You're the government. Make the vaccine available. Let people be free to choose. Look, Dan Crenshaw knows that's bullshit, right? I mean, he knows the door-to-door -door approach doesn't take away anyone's right to choose. He knows there's no coercion. And at some point, he knows this is all just the own the liberals theater. And yet he's doing it anyway. See, I this is where I really, I mean, I understand almost all the motivation. I understand the, the, the ambition, the clicks, the raise money, you, you raise your profile, you get the dopamine hit, all of that stuff. But you know, given all of the menu of things you can talk about, to talk about something in in the way that he does, knowing that it might actually result in people getting sick and dying, I, I just that's that's what's unconscionable to me.
It's depraved. Yeah, it is depraved. It, it is you know? literally depraved. And it says, uh, you know, my ambition, my thirstiness, uh, my, you know, need to be in the public eye, my need to get reelected. Um, I will literally do it on the bones of the dead fellow citizens who believed my bullshit. Okay, well, so this seems to be related. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of writing something on this and, and connecting two dots, and may, maybe I'm straining to con- No, I don't think I'm straining to connect the dots. I, I think there's two developments this week that play into this theme that we're discussing, but also suggest how our politics are really, are the, the ground beneath our feet is still, is still shifting. Number one, um, Donald Trump uh, overtly now embracing the Ashley Babbitt as martyr narrative, um, which is transforming January 6th from this uh, terrible thing to not so bad thing to this glorious patriotic uh, uprising to stop the stolen election. That's number one. Um, and that's going to play with the, you know, that's boob bait for the Bubba's as well. And then number two, the, watching people, watching uh, Republican politicians in places like Pennsylvania uh, going along with Arizona style audits. You have this uh, state senator in Pennsylvania who is uh, demanding a uh, pushing for a forensic audit in Pennsylvania, which means that they have also decided that they will use the big lie to keep the base riled up to advance their own political careers, even at the cost of undermining the legitimacy election even more. I mean, the way that it's become internalized and institutionalized, and it's it 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 does feel that the the wind is at the back of the people who are engaging in this dumbing down. Um, and maybe that's not it. Maybe it's worse than dummy down. Maybe it is, you know, feeding the angry beast, keeping the beast as angry as, as, as possible. Um, do you see it that way? Yeah. When, what makes it really reprehensible is that the people doing this, I mean, you know, always putting Donald Trump in a, in a category by himself because he's a sociopath and also, you know, he's just mentally unstable. I mean, the fact that Trump, as Tim Miller and others pointed out, um, you know, actually believed that he was going to be reinstated next month as president. Um, there's, there's, he's, you know, he's just not sane. So let's sort of put him to the side for a moment. But the people that are, that have completely functioning cerebral cortexes, um, they, what they're doing is they know, especially if they're in government, if they're members of Congress, they know that what they are doing is increasing the chances of another Oklahoma City right. type thing. Oh. They are literally encouraging people who are now going to uh, resort to violence yet again, um, who are part of organizations that uh, are clearly intent on terrorism of some kind, domestic terrorism. They've been warned about this by the FBI. They've been warned about it by the Department of Homeland Security. And their answer is, I don't give a shit. It's good yeah. for me. Um, and That's right. so. I mean, you know, and, and this is important. It's not just retconning what happened on January 6th. It is sending a very clear prospective message to, you know, the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, um, these various militia groups that, that you know, your fight, when you tell yourself that, you know, when you're dressing up in, in the battle gear and you're, you know, parading around with the, um, you know, with the AR-15s and everything, that, that you are, in fact, fighting for something good and noble and you are, in fact, real patriots. They and, know and, they, they know exactly what they're doing, I and they so. know because they've been briefed on it that, uh, for example, if this Capitol cop, whoever, you know, what, however it happened that a bullet found Ashley Babbitt, whether it was, 
you know, in, in the middle of all this chaos or whether a, a policeman shot her under, you know, under attack, they know that putting that out there will basically get a Capitol Hill policeman murdered. Mm-hmm. They know it. They've been told this and they don't care. They're like, yeah, but yeah, but look at how I'm polling. Look at my demo, baby. Um, you know, look at the fundraising rolling in. I'm going to stay in Washington and I'm now I'm going to get on my pet. Um, hobby horse for one second and say the thing that is, you know, and George will, as always said it better than I did. Um, this is a GOP that is terrified of its own base. And the yeah, thing I always add to this is part of what they're doing. Part of what makes Dan Crenshaw and Josh Hawley who they are is they love living in Washington. And the greatest thing they fear is having to go home and live among their constituents. And have, and have the constituents be mad, mad at them. Well, you know? and to be mad, exactly. To be mad at them. But also, they they like living in the Emerald City. They like they like being on the East Coast. They like decent restaurants and, uh, you know, nice homes in Northern Virginia. They are, they're not, you know, Elise Stefanik is not going back to upstate New York. That if there is right. one overriding political reality about Elise Stefanik and Josh Hawley, it's that, um, you know, destiny did not raise them to be, a, you know, a lawyer in Missouri or a county commissioner in upstate New York. They have always believed they're slated for greater things and they're not going home again. And their well, see, greatest that, yeah. fear is to be sent home to live among people who they who, whom they fear and whom they don't like. But that's been the case for a long time that people have Potomac fever and ambition will lead you to a certain point. I, I, I agree with everything you're saying here, but I also think that there's this other there's other twist that they, they live in genuine fear of their yes. Facebook feeds, that they live in, in, in genuine fear of having, you know, going to the airport and having happened to them what happened to Lindsey Graham when for that five seconds he broke with Donald Trump, that people are going to, that, that, that they will become, not just to lose their offices, but they will become pariahs and that the fly monkeys will descend on them and their families and they will be cast out. I mean, there's there is a genuine fear that what happens, you will be ostracized from the tribe. It's not just that you will lose your job. You won't be able to go to the local Kroger's and, and, <laughs> and shop if you piss off these people. But even if that weren't the case, Charlie, I think we need to emphasize a, a, an underlying problem, which is in the culture war, Elise Stefanik and Josh Hawley and Dan Crenshaw are part of the culture that they are fighting against, that they claim to be fighting oh, against. Oh, yeah, no question about even it. If, even if, you know, if Stefanik were just defeated and, uh, you know, and everybody said, you did a good job, her she's, she, her cultural disconnection is such that, that her greatest punishment is not that pe- she goes home and people are mad at her, it's that she goes home at all. It's that she's suddenly like, so here I am, you know, uh, up here in the, you know, wilds of, New York State, after going to prep school and going to Harvard and serving in Congress, um, that Potomac fever strikes everybody. But it's a different kind of Potomac fever when someone says, "Well, if I lose re-election, I guess I have to go back to I guess so. you know the suburbs of California or <clears throat> you know Brookline, Massachusetts, or uh, you know to my mansion in Cincinnati or whatever it is." Th- th- this is different. These are folks who genuinely don't like the people they represent, even if they weren't afraid of them, they have nothing in common with them. And that makes this disconnect really vicious and hypocritical. 
both of those things. So let's talk about Pennsylvania for just a moment. The the guy pushing this is a guy, a state senator named Doug Mastriano, um, oh, who is the chairman of the state senate's intergovernmental operations committee. And he actually visited Phoenix, the site of the, uh, uh, the this fake audit of Maricopa County. And in, instead of looking at it going, this is a complete um, clusterfuck, this is a joke, this is a farce, he said, hey, this is a pretty good idea, I'm going to bring this back to Pennsylvania. So, you know, in his capacity as chair, so he has some, some clout, he's requesting, this is what's interesting to me, Tom, He's requesting a long list of items. He wants election equipment, software, copies of hard drives and phone SIM cards, wireless router logs, and more stuff. He's also asked for samples of the paper used to create ballots. So this guy has taken the tinfoil hat and put it squarely on his head because the stuff he's asking for are going, well, you know, could it have been the Italian space satellites? Uh, could the Chinese have actually sent in ballots with bamboo in them? I mean, he's gone for all of that stuff. And so, you know, these this process by which the craziest, wildest ideas, you know, from the far reaches of Nutville – you know, end up in, you know, you know, being pushed by elected Republicans and then become kind of the, well, yeah, that's kind of the background noise of our politics right now. And this, this guy thinks, this guy, Doug Mastriano, obviously thinks that doing this sort of thing is what is going to advance him from the state Senate to the governor's office. He's running, going to run for governor. And this is the kind of thing that he thinks is in his political interest to do. So we don't live in a world in which you you do stuff like this and people say, you're crazy, you're reckless, you're irresponsible. They go, no, you go. The base loves this. But I I think there's something else going on with it. And I think it's something that's afflicted us as a society. You know, the other reason that people do stuff like this, it's interesting. You know, being a state, I I worked in state government in Massachusetts for two and a half years. Uh, I was a legislative aide to the chairman of the Commerce and Labor (laughs) Committee. You know, if I had to characterize most of state government where I mean, it's it's interesting in some ways, but mostly it's boring. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it is state legislating is a grind. It's it requires and I wasn't um, particularly I don't think I was particularly great at my job. I don't have a real eye for attention, um, you know, in legislative detail. And that's where you I think that's where the really good legislators who go national learn their chops. Why would you be sitting there trying to figure out how to fund, you know, the the bus lines in Harrisburg when you could be at the center of a great national drama? And that's what has happened. These guys have all become drama queens. They've all become, hey, I'm bo- being a state legislator is boring. I could be a hero. I could be, you know, the center of a of a John Grisham novel. And I think that's what's really driving these guys is this crazy kind of narcissistic boredom. And I think, frankly, that's what's driving all of American society these days. Well, it, it does feel that during the the COVID lockdown, when we had way too much time on our hands and spent too much time on Twitter, that, that the, the nation became crazier. I mean, th- there does seem to be a connection there. Crazier. Crazier. No, no, no. There's no question about it. We were, we were, we were crazy before. Okay. So, uh, segue because, um, I, I want to talk about something else that's going on here. The, one of the big issues for the Republican base, uh, they've moved on uh, to critical race theory and other things that be, you know, the, for the moment, but like five minutes ago, it was all about cancel culture. Remember everything was cancel culture right. and absolutely seamlessly 
what what you have is you have these conservative organizations, including the official GOP in the state of Virginia, going after professors like the very well-known political scientist Larry Sabato, um, you know, asking for an investigation. I mean, this is the right has gone from saying that the worst thing in the world is cancel culture to absolutely thoroughly embracing it and going after every single person in academia that they don't like trying to get them fired. I mean, and it's and what's interesting is the complete sort of shamelessness about it. I mean, it's like without blinking, like, yeah, yeah, we, we need to cancel Larry Sabata. We need to cancel this person who uh, wrote the op-ed piece about, was it the Air Force Academy? We need to fire that 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 person. And, uh, we need to you, cancel you know, Tom Nichols. We need to cancel uh, Tom Nichols. And, and and it's like, weren't you the guys? No, no, just that was that was like last week. It doesn't exist. Time doesn't exist. Memory doesn't exist. The past doesn't exist for these people. If you're talking about shamelessness, um, yeah, I know. you know, when when the um, when they came after me starting five years ago and uh, we haven't mentioned the name of my employer, but I'll just uh, answer, answer uh, the objection and say, Please remember, I don't represent the United States government in any way, shape, or form. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Um, they These folks were saying, well, you know, he, Tom Nichols, writes these things, and he is therefore violating the Hatch Act. This, from an administration, and this was like weekly that people were calling, you know, the Navy and saying, fire Tom Nichols. Um, and this, from an administration that had dripping contempt for the Hatch Act. You had, you know, Kellyanne Conway and others who had piled up, you know, amassed piles of Hatch Act violations. Um, and what they really meant was, as the saying goes, for my friends, everything, for my enemies, the law. And, uh, you know, this is Republican cancel culture that is even, I would argue, even more shameless because I'll say this about the people on the left. They go after their own. And sometimes, in fact, they're even worse. They go after their own. Oh, yeah. Um, the revolution on the left always eats its own children. The right um, is just, you know, we are the we're the guardians of free speech and we care about religious freedom and personal freedom. Um, and, and by the way, this dovetails. Not back so much. Your, yeah. yeah. This dovetails back to your point about vaccines. Uh, you know, my personal autonomy, my freedom, my body, no one can touch my body. My decisions are mine. Well, unless it's about abortion. And then all of a sudden it becomes a, a compelling state matter. Um, you know, this is this has been the again, the search to find the hot buttons among the rage junkies. There is no principle behind it. There is merely what will empty their wallets and glue their eyeballs to our candidates and to our programs. No, and I and I think that you know you see this with I'm not going to and I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of critical race theory right now, but you know it it is interesting that there is this this new movement on the right, um, which again conservatives up until about five minutes ago really were were at least pretending to embrace academic freedom and small l liberalism as a way to fight political correctness on campus. Right. I mean, this was the whole push is that is that you you wanted to protect. Um, you know, the rights of individual conscience um, that you didn't want to have this, you know, heavy handed political correctness. And now there's a, uh, this growing appetite for, no, you know what, if we politically have the ability uh, to impose, to ban certain ideas, certain theories, certain concepts, um, impose uh, government mandates, a uh, national review of all people had this long, long, long piece by this Canadian professor um, writing about how the government, we, sh we should use our power. Power, our political clout 
to impose government-mandated viewpoint neutrality on universities, which is an idea so breathtakingly authoritarian and statist. <laughs> Soviet. Go, wait, I mean, for, for Marsha Blackburn, wait, you know, suddenly worrying about whether Tay-Tay is going to get pushed off stage. Here's this guy saying the government's going to start, you know, policing, uh, you know, and, and I think one of these right-wing kooks started talking about we need cameras on teachers. Oh, this is, no, that, this is not just one. This is a new thing. I mean, watch. This is going to be this is going to be one of those big things in about five minutes. The cameras, the cameras in the in the, in the classroom, because we need to we need to tape all the kids. We need to tape the the teachers screw per personal privacy. Uh, we are all in on the surveillance culture, which is uh, which is interesting. It, it, yeah. It's insane. And, and you know, it's interesting because I teach courses um, uh, by distance sometimes where they're hybrid, where I have a bunch of students in the classroom and then that's being filmed for the students who can't be there and everyone has to sign a release that they are allowing themselves because there are so many privacy issues and freedom of expression issues and the conservatives are like yeah forget about that the, the same people that will rant about the chinese social credit system will be more than happy to implement the chinese social credit system if they think again i i don't even think they're thinking it through i think they just figure hey um you know i need to gin up some rage and this guy this this was kind of like almost like an incel kind of you know what you need to do this on campuses so the conservative guys can get dates um i mean that was yeah, a true the people that haven't read it don't know how truly weird that article was Okay, this is what made it so hilarious that he starts by by citing a study showing that most women on, on college campus don't want to date Trump, um, you know, Trump supporters. I mean, who knows why? Uh, wow. <laughs> but but, the, you know, using that as the jumping off point for why we need to have this massive government state intervention in controlling what universities do. I just like what he really did kind of invite some interesting yeah. speculation as to his motives there. Because you can't get laid. So therefore, let's pass legislation. OK, by the way, I want to go back to your point about the feeding the rage machine, because uh, JVL had a great piece in his uh, newsletter about this yesterday. A perfect example of what you're of what we've been talking about here. Um, issues that sort of pop up, uh, you know, to get, to get everybody riled up and then absolutely vanish. For example, do you remember when the biggest thing in the world on the right was uh, that Trump was going to end birthright citizenship? Yes. <laughs> this was everything. You know, Michael Anton, the guy who wrote the Flight 93 election, said Trump should end birthright citizenship. It should never have existed in the first place. And if he didn't end birthright citizenship, it would be the end of democracy. Breitbart, Stephen Miller, Trump exploring all legal options to end crazy anchor baby policy, the Hoover Institution, the shaky case for birthright citizenship, National Review. I uh, had a big piece. Trump's critics are wrong about birthright citizenship. Um, you had American greatness close the birthright citizenship uh, loophole. So this was like the most important issue that we had to deal with. When's the last time you heard anybody even mention it? It just right. it well, sort of popped up, was was all on fire, kerosene fire, gone. Gone. And it, gone. And it's probably not testing well with the rage junkies. Well, they've it, moved it, on to it, something it, else. They've moved on, exactly. They've sort of consumed that um, you know, that that they've drained that particular bottle of hooch. Uh, and now they're looking around behind the bar to see, you know, what else is, you know, they they drank they drank down the last uh, drop of uh, that bit of Jaeger. And, you know, now they're looking for a fresh bottle of fireball back there somewhere. 
Well, they're, they're going well, and the Fireball—they're going for the the pure stuff. I mean, this is the in in, in terms of using the analogy of, of drug use, going for the the most potent possible meth. They are right now at like one inch away from white genocide. You know, they they mm-hmm. are these people are coming. Um, these black people—they're getting very very uppity, and they are going to attack whites. There's anti-white hysteria. They are teaching anti-white hysteria in the schools. So uh, these black people, these radical black professors are coming for your children. I mean, it's like, whoa. Which again is going to lead us right back down the road of somewhere, somebody, somebody's getting together with someone else to think about how to plant the bombs. I, I, in, this is hard for somebody like me though, because if, if I got dropped into a seminar run by Robin D'Angelo, you know, the woman who wrote, you know, White Fragility, Yes. My, my my head would explode because people I, like I can't Robin, even hear that without laughing. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, it's. Can you imagine being in one of those seminars? Because you know, for people who aren't familiar, this is one of those where she has a new book where she's complaining that everybody doesn't agree with her. Like, for example, uh, she says, you know, silence is complicity. So she she had a group of of really woke progressives in one of her um, reeducation seminars and went around the room and said okay you you need to like confess your your racial sins and a few of them didn't want to engage they didn't want to say anything even though they had been told silence is complicity and she didn't understand why would you not speak i think it's because the progressives even the progress, woke progressives had figured out that robin d'angelo did not want a conversation about race. She did not want to hear what you thought about race. That all she wanted was for you to step on one of these invisible tripwires of grievance so she could show you how whatever you said was wrong. Whatever you said showed that you were not willing to take on board your guilt. So, you know, there's there are reasons for people to object to all of this. But you know, Charlie, but the- it's one it's one thing to expose it. It's another thing to pass all legislation and make this the centerpiece of all of your politics. But this I think this reveals something else that, you know, I know you and I have talked about, which is, <clears throat> you know, I kind of laughed when you said Robin D'Angelo, because I think the appropriate response, not to the issues of racism, which are serious issues, yeah. but to somebody like Robin D'Angelo, who is not a serious person, is to kind of chuckle. And there was once a time when conservatives were confident enough to say, look, um, you know, I, I, I am not going to, um, you know, go into a five alarm fire and start passing legislation because of somebody like Robin D'Angelo. Um, and, and I, and because we had confidence that most people, progressives, conservatives, right, left, most, we conservatives have a kind of in, inherent faith in human nature. And we understand um, you know, as C.S. Lewis once said, that if you play these games in your head, eventually you awaken our sense of self-proportion and, and we just laugh at you and go to bed. Um, and I think we used to believe that now, no matter how silly it is, no matter how small, every, the, the conservative psyche has become so fragile and so terrified and so snowflakey that, you know, some... Uh, someone who is the the terror of the HR department shows up and it's like, oh my God, you know, we have to go, we have to start building a panic room and prepping for the great race war. It's inane. The fact that that progressives themselves, uh, I think it was somebody, it might've been at the Bulwark, but somebody pointed out that D'Angelo, her new thing in her new book is is complaining about how many times people just get up and walk out. I know, I know. Just, I know. just say, yeah, okay, well, thank you very much for your interest in race relations. I have, you know, actual work to do. And they just, they just leave. Um, you know, that, instead of 
um, <clears throat> excuse me, instead of being more confident that that's going to happen more often, um, again, we create this giant drama and I am the savior and I will pass legislation to save the white race and blah, 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 because my life isn't that interesting and I need some kind of juiced up, um, you know, um, passion play where I'm the central figure. And it's just silly, but it's also extremely dangerous now. It is extremely dangerous. Okay, so in the time that we have left, I'm going to change channels directly, but since you have an area of expertise in foreign affairs, I have to ask you, what is your take on what is happening with Afghanistan and President Biden's comments yesterday that he's reasonably confident that the Afghan military is going to be able to fend off the Taliban, which seems to put him in the very small minority of observers who have confidence that the Afghan military will be able to hold off the Taliban, which appears to be on the march. So your take on, on the, on the withdrawal and what is likely to happen? The president's wrong. Um, mm. I, now he's wrong about the Afghan military. I mean, the Taliban's going to take over that country again. Um, but I also am going to defend Biden here and say, what else was he going to say? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the American people have created, as they always do. And I, you know, me, I blame the public always in the first instance. Um, the American public has said, we don't want to fight these forever wars, a term I think is stupid, and Biden yeah. used it, and so do, you know, right-wingers. Um, but we want absolute security and zero defect. We have a zero defect tolerance for terrorism. Uh, so don't stay there, but don't come home. Don't put more troops in, but don't take troops out. Uh, don't, you know, don't, don't try and win, but make sure you don't lose. And right. I think Biden, to his credit, said, I'm too old to play that game. I'm not getting any more young Americans killed in this no-win situation, uh, and I'm just going to do the thing that brings them home. Because if you think about it, think about where the American public is, from Andy Basevich on one side all the way across to, you know, AOC or Rand Paul or, you know, Josh Hawley or whoever they are. Everyone's answer is Afghanistan's bad. It wasn't our war. Bring home. Bring it home. So I think Biden did the right thing by saying, look, I'm just going to cut through this knot. I'm not going to keep playing this game. Um, and I think the one place where I, I would be really critical of Biden <clears throat> is that he should have just come forward and said, the people have spoken. We've been there for 20 years. You all want to come home. I think that's the right thing to do. Now, here are the risks and consequences of that so that down the line, you understand what could happen and be prepared for it. And on a political note, I would say if I were if I were running the Democrats, I'd say, hey, you all got what you wanted, which was an end to forever wars. Three years from now, if something bad happens, I don't want to hear how this was Joe Biden's fault. But, but with all that said, Biden getting out there and saying, you know, come on, man, uh, here's the deal. You know, the Afghans can do this. No, they can't. This is going yeah, to become terrible. I thought I thought that was unfortunate. So is is the president doing enough to uh, push back against uh, Russian cyber uh, cyber attacks? It does seem as if Vladimir Putin is kind of thumbing his nose at at uh, um, at, at Biden and saying Wh whatever happened at that summit, um, and whatever warnings you gave me, uh, screw that. I'm I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. So give me your sense of the state of play there. You know, interesting. I'll give you an interesting. I hope answer to that question: Is the president doing enough? I don't know, and I shouldn't know. Um, I hope so, and I hope it's happening in a way that the president does not admit. Um, I hope right now that there are um, people 
uh, on our side who are making life miserable for the Russians or who are planning on making life miserable for the Russian government and these hackers. Um, what I don't want is for Biden, and I think this is where Americans, again, have unrealistic expectations, for Biden to get out there and to say, hey, you know, Putin, you said fuck me, well, fuck you back, and here's what we're going to do. The whole point of this kind of shadow war in cyberspace is that you don't announce these things, in part because you can't be sure that you're going to be able to pull them off. Um, this is long game. Now, you know, if Biden's not doing anything and, you know, three years from now, we get a five, six years from now, we get a Bob Woodward book that says Biden didn't do anything, then I think we can hold him responsible. But I yeah. don't know what the Americans are doing. And frankly, I don't think we ought to know right now because that's one of those, if I knew, I couldn't tell you. And if I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, you'll, you'll notice that I'm not asking you about what the NSA is doing with Tucker Carlson because I don't think we actually know what that whole story is. And I'm not going to get sucked into that that particular, you know, ridiculous can story. I, can I, yeah, but, can but, I do but, 10 but, seconds that says, yeah, sure. here's what I think happened. I think when you reach out to foreign nationals from a, from an, uh, you know, a, a regime that is up to no good, it's possible that you're going to get overheard by the people that are watching the foreign nationals. I don't think this is a complicated story. What's interesting to me is what, why is Tucker Carlson outing himself ahead of time? What is he trying to get ahead of that is so bad that he's prepping his audience for the argument that I was spied on? That's what's really interesting. There's something what the NSA about is doing right? to me seems totally routine. What Carlson's doing to me do, doing seems to me to be really interesting and, and suggests to me that he's trying to get ahead of something that he knows is going to break. But I, we don't know in with with any degree of of certainty that in fact this leak came from the NSA. That there is an NSA whistleblower. Uh, this could have come from the Russians. It could have come from a whole bunch of other people. There's many many, many many other um, explanations. We're talking about Tucker Carlson, who is still waiting to find the USB drive that was put in a FedEx package yes, that would have yes. blown up the Biden administration, except someone lost the FedEx package. When you talk about stories that went by the boards that nobody talks about anymore, what happened to that one? So, so you know, everything Tucker says we have to take with a gigantic boulder of salt anyway. So one final note before we go into the weekend, you said that uh, that poll, Republican primary poll that came out that shows Trump with 55 percent and DeSantis with like nine percent. My favorite part, though, was Christy Nome zero. Tom Running Cotton. behind Candace Owens. Yes, I know. Tom Cotton won. <laughs> Marco Rubio won. Ted yeah. Cruz four. Candace Owen for so all of the sucking up all of that did they even test for Josh Hawley I didn't even remember but I mean it's, just, it's like you know what profit Josh you know? Hawley's support had to be measured in parts per billion exactly oh uh, there's a certain see there is a certain cosmic justice after all Tom Nichols thank you so much for joining well, me on the thanks, podcast Charlie. today and hope you have a great weekend you too have a good weekend take care and thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday, and we'll do this all over again.